Hey everybody, it's Lance from First Church, and I'm excited to resume our pastor's Bible study, continuing to work line by line through Mark's Gospel, or in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning with verse 30 today. You can jump in right here if this is your very first episode, or you can go all the way back to the beginning and begin with Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. But today we're in chapter 6, continuing with verse 30. Let's begin reading. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him everything they had done and taught. Many people were coming and going, so there was no time to eat. He said to the apostles, Come by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. They departed in a boat by themselves for a deserted place. Many people saw them leaving and recognized them, so they ran ahead from all the cities and arrived before them. When Jesus arrived and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. So as we're continuing in and seeing what's happening when Jesus is traveling and teaching, remember one of the things that he's done is take these earliest disciples, particularly the ones that he intends to be the leaders of the church on the other side of the crucifixion, death, and resurrection, and he's given them this practice opportunity. Remember, apostles means sent ones, and those are the 12. When we talk about the 12, we're talking about those apostles. And in our previous reading, Jesus had sent them out and given him his power and said, go and do these things and be about this work, go in pairs, and then come back to me. So a couple of things I want to point out is that when they do, they've returned back into him, uh, they're experiencing this process of doing and then debriefing. I'm going to try it, and then I'm going to share with you what happened. I want to lift that up as being 2,000 years later, one of the things that modern science tells us is one of the most effective ways to teach people. To only show them what to do, but then give them a chance to do it, and then debrief with them how it went. So Jesus is ex uh, exhibiting some what we would call modern exemplary teaching factors. I've always just found the leading practices of Jesus very interesting. That's what's happening here. And another important thing that he invites them to do is to take a break for a little bit. You need time to rest and to restore and to take it easy. You're doing this amazing work and there is so much work yet to be done. You're helping people, I'm sure he says, and there's so much work yet to be done. And yet in order to do that work, you need to chill out and do nothing and rest and restore a little bit. I want to pause because in our culture, we have an understanding of just going and going and going and doing and doing and doing. And we have this view that taking a break to accomplish nothing, to fix nothing, to do nothing other than just breathe deep and pray and be with our loved ones and restore is almost like time wasted. I mean, we would never say that, but that's how we act. One of the things that Jesus is showing his disciples is that this is key. And one of the things that I lift up when teaching people how to be Christians in the world is point out to them, you can't pour out something that you don't have. You can't give someone something that you haven't yourself received. So Jesus, knowing what his disciples have done and accomplished, knowing how difficult it was, knowing how exhausting it was, pauses and tells them, you just need to rest and to restore so that's the posture and the expectation that they have set up. But in trying to do that, there are more crowds. We have in the text, it says people are coming from all of the cities. And what that means is that the apostles were very successful in spreading the news of God's kingdom in a lot of places because people are coming to experience firsthand Jesus' teachings. 
So things are beginning to get a little unruly. The crowds are getting really big. Things are not well organized. They didn't plan for this to happen in this place. This is how people are responding. And one of the things that I want to lift up is Jesus' response. It says in verse 34, He had compassion on them, the crowds, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. So if you've had a chance to participate and worship at our church, you may have heard me tell the story before, but I grew up as a young person being exposed to church and I had positive experiences and went through things like confirmation and participated in youth group a little bit, but it never really sunk in. And by the time I was in college and a young adult, I wouldn't have identified as being Christian. But I found the stories of the world, the idea that value and purpose was tied up in things like consumerism or achievement at work or the things that you could acquire or the things that looked good on social media. I was finding that really empty and unfulfilling. And it was on my search for meaning and purpose, connection and the answers to the meaning of life that I found Christ or reconnected with Christ, whatever language you want to use. But one of the things that resonated with me the most was this image. The idea of being a sheep without a shepherd. Because even at my most lost, even at my most non-Christian, I was still a moral person. I was still trying very hard every day to be a good person, to be kind and generous and giving in the world. All of these things that we associate with things like Christianity. But what I didn't have was real purpose. What I didn't have was real direction. Which I didn't have was real leadership and provision and protection. I didn't have someone to actually guide me. That's what I found when I became Christian. And I really resonate with this idea of being a sheep without a shepherd because it's so much different than being called bad or unworthy or not good enough or in trouble. Sometimes that's how churchy people talk to non-Christian people. And I think that's really missing the point. I think this image is so much more powerful. The idea of recognizing that so many people are trying to be and do good things and yet they are lost. They don't have direction. They don't have provision. They don't have leadership. They don't have real connection to what really matters. So I want to pause right now. If you're one of the people that's watching this live with a group of people, you can pause it for discussion. If you're listening on a podcast while you do the dishes or watch the dog, you can pause it as well. And I want you to stop and think about that image of the sheep without a shepherd talking to all these people who are looking for something. How does that image strike you today? How does it resonate with you? Do you feel like it applies to you now? Do you feel like it applied to you at some other point? Do you feel like it applies to someone that you know, someone who is fundamentally moral or good or trying, but isn't really connected with something that provides ultimate meaning and purpose and provision? How does that image strike you? and How does it resonate with you today? And know that when Jesus sees sheep without a shepherd, his response is compassion and teaching. Okay, jumping back into the text today, we'll continue reading right there in verse 35. Late in the day, Jesus' disciples came to him and said, This is an isolated place, and it's already late in the day. Send them, the crowds, away, so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something to eat for themselves. Jesus replied, You give them something to eat. But they said to him, Should we go off and buy bread worth almost eight months' pay, or maybe your translation says 200 denarii, and give them something to eat? He said to them, How much bread do you have? Take a look. After checking, they said, five loaves of bread and two fish. He directed the disciples to seat all the people in groups as though they were having a banquet on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. 
He took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up to heaven, blessed them, broke the loaves into pieces, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate until they were full. They filled twelve baskets with the leftover pieces of bread and fish. About five thousand had eaten. Okay, so maybe you're brand new to Christianity. Maybe you're brand new to reading scripture. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard that story and your reaction could be all over the place. It could be from way amazing to way no way. You know, you could have any kind of reaction. A lot of you may be experiencing this as someone who has been around church for a lot of their life and they feel like they've heard this story over and over and over again and there might not be much to glean from it. So either way, I ask you to try to hear this story fresh for the first time as we read it today. I want to point out that what is happening is that people are so spiritually hungry for what Jesus has to offer that they have traveled long distances to be with him and have made no provision for their physical hunger. Now, my family, when we go somewhere, knows that we need to have food for everybody, right? Got four kids, so there's a lot of snack planning. I know if you go somewhere, you're thinking about where am I going to eat, what am I going to eat, when am I going to eat. People 2,000 years ago would have even fewer options to provide food for themselves, meaning they would take their planning even more seriously. Does that make sense? They know there's no stopping over at a Whataburger on their way, and so they're going to plan to make sure to have their provisions. And these people don't, which means they're either silly or they're unprepared or they were so passionate and excited about encountering Jesus that they didn't even think to take care of some of the most obvious things because they were so energized by what was happening and what was possible. I think that's the most likely explanation. And so when you imagine a community of people, imagine the energy that would be there. By the way, one of the idiosyncrasies that would take place in their culture and time is that when they counted a community of people, they would only count the men. Obviously, we think and behave very differently today. So know that when it says 5,000 were there, what they mean is there were 5,000 grown men. But we know that women and children would have been a part of it. So in reality, it would have been an even more crowded scene. 5,000 men plus women and children. So imagine what a crowd of 5,000 men, women, and children would have been like and what that energy would have felt like. That's what this moment is like in that place. So the disciples point out, look, at some point, this crowd needs to eat, right? They don't have a solution, but they have a concern. And Jesus says something fascinating to them. He says, you give them something to eat. Jesus knows that they don't have food for 8,000 people on them. He's aware of that. So when he says, you give them something to eat, what he's saying to them is, I have a teaching moment for you. The disciples respond with, what should we do? Go take 200 denarii and in their world, that would have been about one day's worth of wages. So should we take 200 days worth of wages and go buy all these people food? Which is an exaggeration, right? Because that wouldn't get anywhere near to buying enough food for that kind of a crowd. So they're basically lifting up how futile that kind of thing would be to try to provide for these people. But what Jesus is pointing out is, you have resources that you're not considering. He asked them to share what they have, and they have five loaves and two fish. And these probably wouldn't be really nice sliced Mrs. Baird's loaves. And these probably wouldn't be really nice full rainbow trout. Think of these more as sardines and almost like biscuits or hardtack. 
So Jesus has everybody sit. It's like a banquet, meaning it's like a place of honor. Remember, in their community and in their culture, to participate in the sharing and the eating of meals is a big place of honor, right? Particularly when led by someone like this. It's true in our world today, too. And he seats them on the green grass like a shepherd, ready to feed, right? And he takes these, this bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he passes it. Which is a key reference, right? For those of you who have been around church a long time, you know that we have the sacrament of Holy Communion, in which we recall what Jesus does on the day that he gives himself up for us, where he takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he passes it. Now remember, whenever we have a miracle, there are always two levels to that miracle. One, not what only is Jesus doing for the people in that moment, but also what is he revealing to be true about us today. So what Jesus is showing in this moment is something about his ability to provide, his ability to sustain, his ability to make a way out of no way. That's something Jesus is teaching in this moment. That's something we celebrate and re-experience every time we come to the sacrament of Holy Communion, even today. It's worth sharing that all four Gospels have different audiences in mind and they have different communities to which they're trying to speak in every Gospel includes this story because of how powerful it is, how universal it is, and what universal good news it gives to us. So that's what I want you to think about today. Again, pause it. What's the second element in this miracle? And what is Jesus revealing to the people who hear it today about who he is today, not just for the people on that hillside 2,000 years ago? Okay, so last little bit of scripture reading here. We're continuing on in verse 45. Right then, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake, toward Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After saying goodbye to them, Jesus went up onto a mountain to pray. Evening came, and the boat was in the middle of the lake, but he was alone on the land. He saw his disciples struggling. They were trying to row forward, but the wind was blowing against them. Very early in the morning, he came to them, walking on the lake. He intended to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they screamed. Seeing him was terrifying to all of them. Just then he spoke to them, Be encouraged, it's me, don't be afraid. He got into the boat, and the wind settled down. His disciples were so baffled, they were beside themselves. That's because they hadn't understood about the loaves. Their hearts had been changed so that they resisted God's ways. All right, so the first thing I want to point out as we jump into that short portion of Scripture is that immediately following what's happened here, this time of teaching and this huge crowd and all of this energy and the provision of the food through the miracle of the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes, what does Jesus need? Some alone time. Some alone time and a chance to recharge, to reconnect, and to himself pray. And again, I just want to lift up one of the hardest things that we have a time doing in our modern professional Western culture is really lifting up the idea of Sabbath and of holy rest and of reconnecting and of doing nothing other than rerouting ourselves in the love and the presence of God. And I want to lift up that. It's so important. Even Jesus does it. It's so necessary and it's so powerful that even Jesus does it. He's our model for this and the proof that there ain't no way we can get away from us needing it too. So, okay, you got me preaching. I apologize, but it's so key. We need to have that rhythm built into our life. Finally, 
I want to draw attention to what's revealed here again in this miracle. Walking on water is miraculous. And so what does it say? What does it reveal? I want to point out again something that happened just a few portions of scripture earlier, and that is this calming of the water in the seas. And remember how I pointed out that in their worldview, their ancient Near Eastern worldview, the chaos and the unpredictability and the danger of the storm and of the waters is something that they would have contributed very key to life. And in their understanding, only one entity, only one thing had control over that kind of chaos. And that's God. We see that in the very beginning with God's spirit going over and calming the waters. And so Jesus calming the waters would have been a very strong revelation or epiphany of who he is. Well, who controls the chaos of the waters? God. We see that again. Who passes by Moses in Exodus, just like Jesus is intending to pass by the people in the boat? God does. Who reveals themselves with this language of be encouraged, it's me, don't be afraid. And I have to be honest here, this is a little bit of a picadillo that I have with the common English Bible translation. Other English Bible translations, I think, root a little bit more closely to the Greek where Jesus is saying, it is I, or it's me, or I am, calling back to the very way that God reveals God's self to Moses. And we see that in Exodus 3, we see it again in Isaiah 41 and 43. It's a really key thing that's happening here because Jesus is referencing not only what's happened with the healings and not only what's happened with the water and not only what's happened with the multiplying of the loaves and fishes. He's pointing out he's not just a charismatic preacher and teacher. He's pointing out he's not just a wonder worker or a miracle doer, but he is God with us and he's showing them through these displays. I want to point out that the disciples are still responding in the pretty typical human way. They're terrified. They're terrified. Even with what they've seen and even with the proof that they've seen that Jesus is good and that he provides, they're still terrified because seeing that kind of power is terrifying. And it takes a lot of trust to get past it. Okay, so for the final question here for our study today is I want to really unpack the imagery and the teaching that we're getting from what's happening in those disciples in that boat. What's happening when they don't have Jesus with them, right? What happens when they're trying to be about Jesus' work and following Jesus' directions, but they're fundamentally separated from him or not with him? The wind and the, sta- the waves are against them. They're facing these trials and struggles. They're trying to row forward, and they're getting nowhere. Think back to your English literature classes, right? What's the truth that's being revealed there? They're trying to get forward without him, and nothing's happened. And then finally, what's the change that happens when Jesus is in the boat with them? Yes, they're afraid. What also is now possible for them? So discuss the imagery in that. And also the question of what does it mean for us to allow, to invite, to yearn for, to seek Jesus in the boat with us today? I know it sounds like a silly preacher question, but really, what does it look like? Is Jesus in the boat with you? What does it mean to have him there? What does it provide for you? What does it ask of you? And how does it direct you? And how do we know if that's how we're living in the day? I want to leave you with that question, whether you're by yourself or in a group. And I want to make sure that you continue going through the Gospel of Mark with us. God bless you, and I'll see you soon with our next message.